good morning, family. It's good to see you here today. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. No S on the end of that, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, small pet peeve of mine. Anyway, <clears throat> Revelation 21, we're going to be looking at verses, actually we're going to be looking at chapter 21 and 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 here in just a moment, uh, but we're going to really be looking at the rest of these two final chapters in uh, this book in the Bible. And uh, as we conclude our series this morning, we've been in a series we've called The Big Picture. Um, if you're new to us uh, today, we've been working through a series called The Big Picture for the last uh, seven weeks. This is the eighth week of the series. We're basically just seeking to do a broad overview of the grand narrative of Scripture, the, the big picture storyline of the Bible. And we began with creation. We're ending today on the new creation, but we began with creation. We walked through the fall uh, into sin. We then considered the promise that God made to Abraham or Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. We moved on from that to the Exodus as God brought his people out of Egypt into the promised land. Then we considered pretty much the rest of the Old Testament in one sermon uh, that we called the remnant as we followed the story of God's people in the land as they were taken out of the land into exile and then brought back to the land. uh, And yet still things were not as they should have been. And then we moved from that week to what we call fulfillment as all of the promises of the Old Testament pointing forward to that great and glorious day when the Messiah would come, the Lord Jesus himself would come and be the fulfillment through his life and ministry, through his death and resurrection, as he fulfills all of the promises that God had made. And then last week we considered Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, who, who came to dwell God's people and empower God's people as we seek to live out a life of mission, doing God's purposes making disciples, communicating the gospel, and so forth. Well, this morning we turn our attention to the last and final stage, if you will, of this grand narrative as we consider what's yet to come. Everything that we've talked about so far has already happened. Today we're going to be talking about what's yet to happen, what's yet to come, what it is we have to look forward to and what we should be longing for. And so with that said, I want to read from Revelation 21. I want to begin in verse 1, read down to verse 8, and then we'll pray. This is God's word. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
Christians, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us understand the fullness of our hope. Lord, as we reflect this morning upon the new creation, a promise that you have given us that is yet to be fully realized, that is yet future. Father, it's my prayer this morning that the things that we consider, that the things that you teach us from your word about the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, Lord, that this would be a source, a wellspring of hope and joy and peace in our lives in the midst of such darkness and chaos in which we live. So Father, would you come and give us just a renewed sense of expectation and anticipation this morning as we think about the new creation. So Lord, would you teach us now and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, statistics indicate that the majority of the people in the world, our culture, believe in heaven or something like it. And it makes sense that that is true because as Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. But think about that for a minute. How often do we, do you think about eternity? How often do you reflect upon that which is eternal? How often do we meditate on heaven? or find ourselves longing for the day when we will be with the Lord. See, I think too often we find ourselves bogged down with the things of this world and heaven becomes nothing more than a distant, vague notion or thought. Recently I heard a pastor say that heaven is often nothing more than a vague three-story building in the midst of a bunch of skyscrapers of our worldly possessions, attainments, and ambitions. But the truth of the matter is, is that those skyscrapers that we're seeking to build here in this world are all going to be cut down one day. And all that's left remaining, all that's left standing will be the eternal hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has promised to give us. That building alone will stand on that day. So my prayer today, my hope, is that the hope of heaven that the hope of the new creation will become something more to us than merely a three-story building that's lost amidst the skyscrapers of our ambitions, of our successes, of our desires in this world. That the hope of heaven, that the hope of the new creation will be that which propels us forward with our hope and our confidence unshaken in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So as we come to our, the, our, our passage this morning, we're gonna be walking through these verses somewhat and really looking at uh, the rest of these two chapters. There's so much here that obviously it would be difficult to just unpack everything. So some of you are gonna be frustrated this morning because you're gonna leave with more questions than you have answers. And I'm sorry, but not sorry for that. Um, you just can't cover it all in one sermon. Uh, but we wanna just give us a glimpse, a little taste this morning uh, to, to try to get that three-story building a lot higher than often exists in our our lives as we think about what God has promised us. So we know as we've been working through this series that really our big idea, our main point this morning is that God's promises will be fully realized and fully enjoyed in the new creation. 
His promises will be fully realized and fully enjoyed in what's called the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. And so as we look forward to that day, to that last stage of fulfillment, I want to walk through really five characteristics or five marks of this new creation that should increase our understanding of it and our longing for it. So five characteristics from the passage here. We could, we could list 10, but we're going to look at five as we think about the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, what God has promised to give his people for eternity. So let's look, beginning with point number one about the new creation. First of all, we see this. We see that the new creation is established as God's provision. New creation is established as God's provision. We see in verse one and two, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And he says this, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So John here is given this, this, this privilege to see a glimpse of what awaits God's people in the future. And he, we often use the phrase new creation to describe that because he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth. There's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the future, uh, about heaven. Uh, and I don't claim to have all of the answers of all of your questions. I don't think the Bible answers all of your questions about what heaven is going to be like. Uh, I think there's plenty of answers there, but I don't think you're gonna have, you're gonna have so many questions, I, you're just not gonna have all the answers. But I think what we're given here uh, certainly is sufficient and intended by God to give us so that we can understand a bit about what awaits us. I think one of the things that's often confused uh, about eternity is that a lot of times when we think about heaven is that we think we're going to spend the rest of eternity when Christ returns or whatever, uh, when he comes again and he raises us and he gives us new glorified bodies, that we're going to spend it up there somewhere. But the pictures we have in the Bible about heaven are actually earthly pictures. The Bible begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. It begins with a creation, and it ends with a new creation. So in essence, when we think about heaven in the end, when Christ returns and all is done and all is finished and all is, is set up for eternity, heaven will come down, if you will. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, which we will inhabit for all of eternity. So we are not going to be perched on a cloud strumming a harp somewhere forever. We're going to be in a new world, a new creation, and it's going to be a glorious, glorious reality. We, we get several glimpses of this in the Bible, and one such glimpse of this is found in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65 uh, verse 17, just, just here's a, a, another little taste of the new heavens and the new earth from the prophet. He says, for behold, the Lord speaking here, I, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For I behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall, not, shall be accursed. 
They shall, be built, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build an, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall all the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain and bear children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Again, there's a lot there that we could just consider, but just the, even this idea of inhabiting houses, planting vineyards, enjoying the labors of our hands in eternity, in the new creation. Eternity is not going to be a boring place. As a kid, I used to think heaven seems a little boring. How, how, how foolish I was to think such things. Um, it's going to include a very real perfect earthly reality that we are going to inhabit and enjoy in which God will be present. And we notice here in Revelation 21 that all of this is God's doing. God is preparing and God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. He will bring it to pass. He has promised to do so uh, and he will bring it to pass. He establishes this work, we're told here, uh, as, the, as, the, as the culmination of all of his promises. He's bringing this about. And we know that even as we think about his kingdom, as, as, as he rules and reigns over his kingdom, his kingdom uh, is not something that we're building up towards him. His kingdom is something that he is bringing about to pass, and he is going to ultimately accomplish. And friends, that should encourage us that should encourage us even in the work that we do today in gospel ministry. As we think about the responsibility of the church, as we think about the responsibility that we have as God's people to be faithful and fruitful brothers and sisters, ambassadors for the king, making disciples, to know that God will not waste our labors, that God will bring about his kingdom and his new creation is a promise and it will come to pass. He will provide it. And so first and foremost, we need to begin there, that the new creation is established, as we will see, will be established as God's provision. This is God's doing. He's preparing this place. Point number two, the new creation is inhabited by God's people. New creation is inhabited by God's people. The Bible references many different cities throughout the course of the Old and New Testament. And probably the two most prominent cities in the Bible are Jerusalem and Babylon. There are many other cities listed there in the scriptures. Jerusalem, though, is a legitimate city, is a real city, obviously, and we can go still visit there today and see all of the, the ruins and things that happened. Even, even biblical archaeology can, can point you to some things that I think that you just would find super encouraging. But Jerusalem is a, is a real city, but it's also a, a word that's used to be descriptive as a reference oftentimes to the people of God. And then you have a reference to Babylon. Babylon was also a real city, a real empire that existed, and yet we see that, biblically speaking, it's often referred to, um, used as a reference for human civilization living in rebellion against its creator. It's, it's kind of a code word, if you will, for um, the, evil pre the present evil age. 
uh, just the, the, the world, the fallen world in which we live. And so you have these contrasting cities, Jerusalem, the people of God, Babylon, those who aren't the people of God, good and evil kind of concepts here in Scripture. But here in Revelation 21, we're told there's yet another city to come, the new Jerusalem. But this city would be much different than any that preceded it. John describes where it comes from, and he also gives us some details about it. Verse 2, he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then if you go on to verse 9, from verse 9 down to uh, really the rest of the chapter, there's just this very detailed description of what this city will be like. Uh, Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven uh, last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Twice now, he's referred to this city as a bride, pretty important. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, a clear crist- clearest crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then you continue reading there, and he begins to describe the dimensions of the city and how it's four square, the same, same size in, in all the four sides and even upwards. And so you see this very detailed uh, description that's, that's, that's accompanied by all these references to, to, to beautiful jewels and, and such things. What we begin to see here is that as God describes this city, he's describing this beautiful completion of God's work that he's going to bring about in the end. It bears the likeness of God himself. It it has with it the beauty of the glory of God. And even as he describes the gates and the walls with multiples of 12, 12 gates each bearing the name of the apostles, the city measured in 12,000 stadia in every dimension, all of these symbolic numbers describing God's people. So what I want you to see here is that while there may very well be a city, and I think there are indications in the Bible that you'll see in the, in the future that, this, that there will be a city-like in, uh, habitation for us, that what John is actually describing here is not a very specific detailed city as much as he is describing the actual people of God in, their, in the fullness of their beauty and in their completed state as perfect image bearers of the king. So it's a beautiful dimension because he notice he says, he says, I see the holy city adorned as a bride for her husband. He refers to the city as a bride. And we know throughout the scripture, both Old and New Testament, that the bride is the church. It's the church. A couple of key things we see here about the people of God that will inhabit this new creation. First of all, they're a holy people, a holy people. People. In fact, if you were to go back to the book of uh, Ephesians, we see this language, you hear it at weddings all the time, and 
Uh, I'm always the guy that says, actually, Ephesians 5 is not about a husband and wife. It's actually about Christ and the church. And so I always want to ruin things like that. But notice what it says in Hebrew, or excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think what you see here in Revelation 21 is a symbolic description of that very reality, of the church being presented without blemish, bearing the glory of God. Isaiah also describes this bride in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more, he's talking about his people, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no, be, no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Later on in that same chapter, he goes on to talk about his people. He says again, and they, shall, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. So all of this language referring again to the bride, to the people of God, often referred to as a city, as a, as a bride adorned for her husband. Point in all of this, brothers and sisters, is that as we get to the end here and all of these details, and Revelation is a very symbolic book filled with all this figurative language describing the perfection and completion of what awaits us. It was actually written, intended to give the church hope amidst persecution so that they would persevere amidst all of the difficulties that they were facing and so that they would get this glimpse of what will one day be which would give them hope to persevere to the end. And this is what we're seeing here at the very End of this book is, is, is John's able to see this vision, this glorious vision of the new Jerusalem, which is describing exactly the state of God's people in the end. It's a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, that God will be faithful to keep his word, that not only will he have a people for himself, he will have a people that is presented without spot or blemish, kept forever for his glory. It will be his people and we're told in Isaiah that he will delight over forever. So as John describes this new Jerusalem coming down, he uses this language to describe the people of God, pointing to the time when God's people will perfectly reflect the beauty and glory of God. I don't know about you, but when I looked in the mirror this morning, I didn't think that about myself. I didn't say, there's a great example of the beauty and glory of God. I thought, I didn't think much of all, actually. I didn't think anything. I just got ready and moved on. But there's coming a day when we will be a reflection of the beauty and glory of God in our perfected state for all of eternity. And this is exactly what we're being pointed to here. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In which righteousness dwells. One thing that the Bible makes abundantly clear is that in the new creation, sin will be no more. Sin will be no more. If you look at Revelation chapter 21, you can see many different things. As I said there, 
Most of chapter 21 is filled with very symbolic description of the city, of the people of God. And then you get to verse 27 or verse 26. They will bring into the, to it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. One message that has been crystal clear from beginning to end is that because of our rebellion against our creator, all of us, all of us have been impacted by the fall. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice. All of us have been impacted by this curse. All of us, all of us can be classified as unclean before a holy and righteous God. And we come here to Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, and are reminded yet again that in the presence of God, that in this, this glorious reality that God's bringing about, that this city, this, this, this perfection of God's people, the completion, the perfection of his church, that nothing unclean will ever enter into it because, as we'll see in just a moment, God will be there and nothing unclean or sinful can ever be in his presence. That's bad news and good news. It's bad news because none of us are clean. All of us are unclean. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as I said. All of us have been impacted by this curse of sin. And yet what we have is a glorious provision in a wonderful Savior as we've seen working our way through this big picture. We read there back in verse uh, 5 of chapter 21 here in Revelation, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You hear that? To the thirsty. Just another term that we can use here that describes the unclean. That describes those who are longing for something that they don't have. And we're reminded here that you are given the very life you need and the life you desire as a gift. It's without payment for our, us. It came at great payment from God for, on his behalf. But when we think about the need that we have, that we are unclean, that we are sinners, that we are outside of this, this picture originally in and of our own standing, Yet God in his grace has given us a savior who came. He lived a life of perfection. He died upon a cross to bear the payment for our sins. Was raised three days later from the grave so that all who would turn and put their hope in him and put their faith in him and all that he's done would have their sin forgiven. That they would be marked as clean. Not because they cleaned themselves up, but because they came under the blood of Jesus Christ and who cleanses them from all unrighteousness. This is the beauty of grace, that while no unclean thing will ever enter into it, we can have hope to enter into it because of the redeeming work of God through Christ. You know, you think about this good news, and you may be here today thinking, well, I don't have a lot of confidence. If, if I were to say, hey, guess what? At two o'clock today, we're all going to experience, we're all going to the new creation. Heaven's coming, and we're gonna be there. Eternity's going to begin. Some of you in this room would have zero confidence that you would be present there in that place. Some of you in this room have zero confidence that you were to die right now that you would go to heaven and be in the presence of the Lord. You don't have that confidence. 
And the reason you may not have that confidence is because you've not put your hope and trust in Christ. It's only in him that you can have such confidence. It's only in Christ that you can have such glorious hope and assurance because it, he has paid the price. He has done everything needed for you and people like you to enter into this glorious kingdom that he is building. Friend, if you would just simply quit trying to earn your way in Christ, quit trying to clean yourself up. Stop. Look to the one who can clean you perfectly. And that is Jesus. Put your hope in him. Rest your case there with him and he will make you new. You think about the church. You may think about the church today and you may not think much about the church. You may be part of the church and you may think that the church is lacking quite a bit. Maybe it's a specific church, maybe it's our church, maybe it's just the church in general, and you're like, man, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really not that impressive. But brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that there's coming a day when the beauty of the church will be absolutely stunning. There's coming a day when the church will be a display of the glory of God in all its beauty and all its perfection forever. The work God is doing even now. One reason we need to take much care to love the church, even now, flaws and all. The church is going to be one day a stunning display of beauty and glory. And this is why we want to be part of it, even now, knowing what God is going to do in eternity. It's also a reminder that the work of redemption, listen, the work of redemption was never only intended to pardon our sin, though it does. The work of redemption was never only intended to get us to heaven, though it does. The work of redemption is also about the work of God making us holy, and he will. So that when we are presented to him in the end, that we will be without spot or blemish. We have that hope even now is because we have a righteousness that's not our own. It's something that comes through Christ. And yet we know that we will inhabit eternity in a perfected state forever and ever. We will be a holy people inhabiting this new creation. But number two, a second truth that you see is that we'll be a multi-ethnic people. A multi-ethnic people. If you go back to verse 24, we see there, by its light will the nations walk. Talking about the lamp of the lamb. No need of sun or moon to shine for the glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. As we've seen from the very beginning, God's bringing his promise to pass and his promise has always been for the nations. This is not something that God just said, I'm gonna start with Israel and if that goes okay, then I may open it up later to others. It's always been from beginning, the very beginning, the promise given to Abram was about the families of the earth. It was going to be through Israel that, that the families would be blessed. They failed miserably getting that message known, but God continued faithfully. And you and I are literally a result of that very promise today, sitting right here in this room. A result of the promise that God made to bless this to bless the nations with his work of grace. And we know that this, this picture of heaven is a multi-ethnic picture that we will see, that we do see in the end. You go to Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, and you can, you can see it time and time again. The city has no need of light. The gates will never be shut by day. 
Oftentimes in ancient world, in ancient cities, the nighttime would come and the, the, the doors of the city would shut. The gates would shut to keep out bad people. And the people were to be inside kept safe. We we're told here that there's, there's, there's no such reality in the new creation. In this, in this promise that we have, the gates will never be shut by day because there's no night. And it's just yet another picture that no one is going to be shut out of that city because there's, there's no night. And, and it's in context here with, with reference to the nations being, being mentioned, we know that, that nations, just think about what we experience today and what we've experienced out the course of human history. Nations are often separated and isolated from one another because of a variety of different reasons. But here we're told that there will be coming a day when the nations would no longer be separated and isolated from one another, but they will be a perfect unified community, united in Christ. We're gonna have believers from all ages, all nations that are going to be there. The New Jerusalem will be a multiracial, multicultural community, uniting black and white, male and female, Syrian and Turk, Arab and Jew. And on and on we can go. We will all be one. The people that inhabit this new creation will be a multi-ethnic multitude. It means we must keep in mind a multi-ethnic ministry, both locally and globally in the present. We want to work toward that end. If that's what God's going to do, if that's what God's going to ultimately establish, then shouldn't it be our desire and our prayer that we wanna pursue that kind of reality as much as possible in the present? We would be a reflection wherever we can be, wherever the church is found, that it could be a reflection to the degree as much as possible as it possibly can, a reflection of what God is saying will be the reality in eternity. We're going to be a holy people and we're going to be a multi-ethnic people who inhabit this new creation. Point number three, the new creation was filled with God's presence. Go back to verse three. So we've seen how it's, going to be inhabited by God's people, this bride, this holy city. But look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And we know that in the Old Testament, the creation account, Eve, sin, enjoyed the fullness of God's presence there in the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed a perfect relationship with God. They enjoyed the, the, the beauty of what it, what, it, what it truly meant to have the presence of God in your midst, the fullness of his presence. They enjoyed that, that relationship. And when sin entered the world, that, that reality was severed. They were banished from the garden. And though the presence of God never left fully, there was now restrictions on that. There were, there were limitations on, on what they could truly enjoy and what God's people could truly enjoy. And so in the Old Testament, we know that the tabernacle or the tent of meeting was established and it was in that that the presence of God dwelled. Later on, it would be the temple. All again, symbols of God's presence where he came to dwell amidst his people. And there were all kinds of rules and regulations as to who could even go in there or even get close to there and all kinds of different rules and regulations and how that was to play out in the Old Covenant way of worship and those kinds of things. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. But in the new creation, God's presence is not going to be limited to a structure. He would now be present 
among all his people forever. The dwelling place of God is with man. The, not the, it doesn't say the dwelling place of God is in a temple built structure or in a tabernacle. It's with man. And we know, biblically speaking, that even when we get to the New Covenant and the New Testament, we learn from passages like 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, that there's no need of a physical temple now because we are the temple. We are the temple where Christ dwells. And there's yet another reality we experience because of the New Covenant now in Christ that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But on the new creation, that's even going to be, the, the, the experience we have with the presence of God is, is going to be even greater because he will be there dwelling with us in full. What a reversal we see from the day Adam and Eve were banished from Eden, from enjoying the fullness of God's presence. There's coming a day when the fullness of God's presence will be enjoyed once more. The new creation is filled with the presence of God, but number four, the new creation is liberated from God's punishment. Look at verse four. By the way, if you haven't figured this out yet, I'm basically preaching verses one through four and using the rest of the chapters to explain Uh, in detail what those verses are saying. It's kind of how this text seems to flow. Look at verse um, three, excuse me, go back to verse three. It says, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. John makes several references here about this new creation that's going to include new realities that we don't experience right now. He talks about wiping away every tear and how death will be no more and how mourning or crying, pain, no more. But even before that, in verse 1, he said, and the sea was no more. Now that trips some people up sometimes and people get a little animated, especially if they like the beach. What do you mean there's not going to be a sea? Well, there's a lot of discussion as to what that verse actually means, but we know Revelation is a highly symbolic, figurative book speaking in those terms, describing reality that we will one day experience and know. And we know that throughout the scripture that the sea was often associated with death and danger and hostility. It was a place where the Jews were often afraid of going. It would oftentimes be even in in uh, apocalyptic literature that out of the sea would come these, these uh, dangerous creatures. And it was often associated, most of the time associated with, with death and hostility and danger and destruction. I think what the Lord is at least telling us here is that there will be no more of that. There will be no more death. There will be no more destruction. There will be no more hostility. No more danger for God's people. And I would venture to guess I think there'll be seas and oceans, but if there's not, that we'll be perfectly content without them. So he elaborates, I think, further in verse four of what he said already in verse one. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I think one of the key phrases that explains all of this is actually found in chapter 22 in verse three where John says there, no longer will there be anything accursed. We know that when the fall happened, that the ground was cursed, the serpent was cursed, 
Adam and Eve now lived in a world that was marked by a curse. We experience life today in this world under a curse. And what we're saying here and what we're seeing here in the new creation is that we will have a world inhabited by a holy multi-ethnic people no longer hindered in any way by the curse. No more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more persecution. No more watching a loved one die. No more watching people grow old and frail. There's not going to be a time in eternity where we have an expiration date. Because the curse will be removed. Liberated from the punishment. Paul reminds us very clearly in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for this slight momentary affliction... The slight momentary affliction that we experience today is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I could stand up here for five hours today and try to explain to you the beauty of heaven and it's still beyond all comparison. And not only do we long for that day, the creation groans for that day. One day when the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. And in a very real way, Eden will be restored. In Genesis 1, we see God creating the heavens and the earth. But in Revelation 21, he creates a new heavens and new earth. In Genesis 1, we see the creation of sun, moon, and stars. But in Revelation 21, we're presented with a world in which the sun and moon are no longer necessary for God will be the light. In Genesis 3, we witness paradise lost and cursed. But in Revelation 22, we see paradise restored and the curse removed. In Genesis 3, the access to the tree of life is denied. But in Revelation 22, we see access to the tree of life granted for all of eternity, for all of God's people. God is going to bring about the reality that was experienced in Eden all the way back in Genesis 1 before the fall. He's going to bring the reality of Eden back back into reality in the end. The reality of Eden known then by two people in a garden, but the reality in the new creation known by a multi-ethnic church and at least a garden, perhaps a city, or even as Hebrews says, a country. God is going to bring this to pass. And the picture that we have here, as John gives it to us, is one of flourishing life without trace of sin or death. In chapter 22, he says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit for each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then he says, No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Friends, this picture of flourishing life without trace of sin or death or pain or sorrow is something that I know that all of us long for. And it should give us all hope in the midst of our greatest pains and struggles. There we, we know as God's people there will be a day that we will inhabit where these things will be no more. The sin you hate the grief you have, the tears you shed, the trials you know, the searing pain that comes and goes in our lives will be no more. This great vision of heaven that we have here should help us persevere through any earthly troubles that we have. And I would even go on to say that 
our ability to persevere through hardship and pain will be greatly hindered by our lack of heavenly mindedness. The more you meditate, the more you reflect on the glory and beauty of heaven, the new creation that God is going to give his people. I'm not saying it won't be removed, but the pains and the sufferings and the trials and the sorrows and the grief will be put in their perspective as we await that glorious day. And again, I just remind you, how often do you reflect of this, on this? How often are you thinking about the beauty and glory of heaven, the new creation that God is going to give his people? We're going to be liberated from the punishment. But number five, the new creation will be underscored by God's purpose. Again, in these last few chapters, we see more than just what we often think about heaven. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, verse 3, chapter 22, will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Two purposes that we see right here in these verses that we will experience. Two responsibilities that we will have in eternity. One is that of true worship. Verse three, we will worship him, we will see his face, and his servants will worship him. I think, again, a lot of times we think about heaven, we think maybe heaven's just a, an eternal worship service. We're all just kind of white robes, standing in a street, singing to a bright glow. I don't know what you think about heaven. I mean, I think sometimes that's what we think. We think we're all standing there and it's just constant singing. For some of you, that excites you. For others, not so much. But I think what we understand here when we see that the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him is that Jesus will be the focus of heaven. Jesus will be the focus of heaven. There are some people, some people that, long for a heaven and they could care less if Jesus is there or not. And brothers and sisters, that is not the heaven of the Bible. The heaven of the Bible is radically focused on Christ. The heaven that we see that God is preparing for us, the new creation, Christ will be the center. And while it will be a joy to be reunited with those that we know and love throughout eternity and experience eternity with them, Christ will be the object of our greatest affection and our greatest hope and our greatest joy, the greatest joy you have when you get to heaven will be to see him face to face. That will be what, what fills you with, with worship and joy forever and ever. John Newton lived in England in the 1800s. He was known for his opposition to the slave trade. And we often know him too as the writer of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. He later on became a pastor and toward the end of his life, he started losing his mind a bit. He would actually, very often towards the end, go up into the pulpit and he'd have to ask the congregation what he was supposed to be preaching. So just so you know, next week, Luke 1, 1 through 4, we're starting Luke. So if I need to be reminded, that's where we're at. Even the very last wedding he performed, he forgot the entire liturgy. Jeremy, glad you did well yesterday. But during his final days, a good friend came to him 
And during the visit, Newton simply turned to him in a missed conversation and said, you know, I have lost almost everything. But this I remember. I am a great sinner. And Jesus is a great savior. I don't know much more in my condition, but I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. And brothers and sisters, I think that will be our song in heaven that we, though great in our sin, serve a great Savior who bore the full wrath of God for our sin in our place, that we could be with him forever and ever. And whatever we do for eternity, it will be centered on the fact that Jesus is a great Savior who died for great sinners, and that there's nothing that we can do on our own, that our greatest hope is found in him and him alone, and we will spend eternity in the new creation enjoying him and honoring him for ever. That is what awaits us in heaven. We will see his face and we will worship him. And I'm not about to speculate what that will look like or even be like, but it will be amazing. But not only will we have a true worship, we will have a shared reign. Look at verse five. It slides this right in. No need for light or lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. One of the things that the Bible does teach us about our eternal state is that in some capacity that we will be not only co-heirs with Christ, but we will reign with him. That we will have some responsibility of reigning with the Savior. I, I don't know what all that means. I, I frankly don't know much about what that means. Um, I do know that it does not mean that we will be equal with Christ because he's God. It doesn't mean that. But in some way, we will share with him in his eternal reign and rule. We will be given responsibility alongside of our Savior to reign with him over the new creation in some capacity as stewards. It's amazing, isn't it? the very ones who actually rejected his reign initially. The very ones who wanted to take charge ourselves will actually be given the privilege alongside of our savior to do the very thing in sin we desired, but yet now given in grace. You know, I said earlier that our view of heaven is often nothing more than a vague three-story building amidst the many skyscrapers of our earthly pursuits. Every single one of us in this room are building skyscrapers. Success, wealth, gotta have this college education, gotta have this, gotta have that. We just keep building the skyscrapers. All the while, little heaven is right there tucked, and you can't even see it anymore. Friends, my exhortation to us all is don't let your pursuits, do not let your earthly pursuits of wealth, career, success, or influence, or whatever it is you're pursuing, cause you to lose sight of the very reality that we will experience forever. Brothers and sisters, what God is presently doing is he is preparing his city. He is preparing his bride for that day when we will see him face to face. What was lost in Eden will be restored in the new creation. And if you know the Lord, no matter how bleak, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful or ugly or sorrowful life is, there are better days coming 
We are all exiles and strangers in this Babylonian captivity of sorts that we know today, but the day is coming when the new Jerusalem will descend and we will be home forever. So friends, let us press on in hope. As the psalmist said, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And there's coming a day when night will be no more. There will be no more weeping in the night. Because when that last morning dawns, the sun will shine. The lamb will be present. And what we know now will be no more. The fullness of joy, the hope that we have now fully realized forever with our King. Brothers and sisters, let's long for that day and let's work for that day and let's plead, as John says, Lord, come quickly for that day. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for every gift you give us because everything that we have from you is indeed a gift. It is something you've kindly given us because we do not deserve any of it. Father, I'm thankful that you have demonstrated your love and your grace in providing for us a perfect savior to rescue us from our sin, to give us forgiveness that we need to begin a work in us that you will bring to completion. Lord, to, to conform us even to, to re reflecting the character and beauty of our Savior himself. And yet, Lord, you have also promised to give us a, what Peter calls an, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for every single one of us. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing now. And Lord, we thank you and we long for the day of what you will do in the future. Father, would you help us to see the beauty and the glory of eternity? Help us not to lose sight of that, Lord. Help us not to Allow it just to exist amidst the skyscrapers of all of our earthly pursuits and ambitions. But God, may it be the all-consuming, towering skyscraper that keeps us going forward in hope. Even when life is at its worst, that we would cling to that firm foundation that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord knowing that one day we will see him face to face and that we will be with you for all of eternity, giving you all the glory. Father, thank you for this great hope, we pray in Christ's name.